Uh, my name is Ann Saxelby. I'm your host, and my co-host today is none other than my lovely sister, Megan Saxelby, who is in town from Chicago on her way to Vermont. Hello. Hello, Megan. So we're broadcasting today from the backyard of Roberta's Pizza, where people are eating in the backyard, and there are countless pounds of tomatoes and greens growing right above our very heads. It's very exciting. Um, in honor of Father's Day, today's broadcast is entitled, Who's Your Daddy? <laughs> and we're going to be talking with two fine cheesemakers about the importance of breeding and, and genetics in the world of dairy. Now, there are many different philosophies and methods surrounding this aspect of farming, and each farmer has their own way of growing and maintaining their herds. From the old-fashioned to the newfangled, we'll be talking about the hows and whys of different dairy breeds and why these cheesemakers have chosen them. Now, uh, before we get started, Megan uh, told me in the car on the way over here that she had an experience with this aspect of farming that she liked to share with us, so I would like her to uh, go ahead and tell that story. It wasn't so much a willing share as Anne in the car said, I'm going to make you talk about that. (laughs) Um, no, I grew up riding horses and my only experience with, um, you know, breeding, it definitely is not dairy, but with breeding okay, and fine. whatnot. That's true. Horse milk cheeses aren't very Horse popular. Horse milk cheese would be disgusting. Um, yeah, I had to help one of the vet, uh, that came to the farm that something was wrong with the vet tech and they were sick. So I helped and had to throw on that really lovely glove that goes up to about your shoulder and get, um, yeah, shoulder deep into, a. <laughs> the uh private areas of a female horse <laughs> to check if the calf was coming out hooves first or heads first it was so very exciting having her here is very comforting for me because i know that you know should i just really um, hands-on experience yeah yeah we have somebody <laughs> here if there's going to be a horse or a cow or a goat born here at roberta's today megan's going to help me out yep um so our first guest on today's show will be rick feet from meadow creek dairy which is located in the blue ridge mountains of southern virginia um, Rick and his wife Helen make really fabulous cheeses, um, all from the milk of their Jersey cows. And uh, then we're going to get Lainey Fondeller on the horn to chat with us from her cheese house up in northern Vermont uh, in, uh, in Westfield. Um, it's, uh, she's got a wonderful operation up there called Lazy Lady Farm. And uh, she's making some of the best goat cheeses that uh, I've ever tasted. So... Rick's going to get the cow side of the story, and Lainey's got the goats. And uh, between the two of them, we should be able to get a pretty good perspective on uh, the spectrum of breeding techniques and technologies and, uh, and different, uh, different dairy breeds that are out there. So a little bit of background about breeding and, and genetics uh, in dairy. Just like there are heirloom varieties of tomatoes and apples and things like that, there are countless breeds of dairy animals. And... However, in the, in the world of conventional dairy here in the United States, we have traditionally favored just a few dairy breeds, excluding the sort of myriad of other wonderful uh, er- or heritage breeds that are out there. And if we're talking cows, our dairyscape is mostly Holstein. Uh, according to Ann Mendelssohn's brilliant book entitled Milk, very appropriate title, <laughs> um, <laughs> Holsteins make up over 90% of the dairy population in the U.S., now, we all know Holstein cows. They're the iconic black and white spotted cows that dot the Wisconsin countryside. Um, they were introduced to the U.S. from the Netherlands in the 1800s, and um, Holsteins were always prized for their sturdy constitution 
and their ability to, to convert grass literally into tons of pounds of milk. Um, one of the most famous Holsteins in history, I was doing a little, uh, <laughs> little research this morning, uh, one of the most famous American Holsteins anyways, was a cow named Pauline Wayne, who was the pet of uh, President William Howard Taft. And uh, she actually grazed on the White House lawn from 1910 to 1913 and produced milk for the first family. So um, if for some reason Michelle Obama ever decides to listen <laughs> to Heritage Radio Network, um, you know, fingers crossed, we might have a, a cow on the front lawn of the, of the White House by the end of this administration. Um, over the past 50 years, however, the dairy industry has kind of been redesigning Holsteins to be milk machines, uh, you know, rather than, rather than sort of family cows. And, um, you know, there, there's very little regard in general for their, their health and well-being. They've been bred for quantity over quality, and um, both the milk and the animals have kind of suffered as a result of this. Um, so... Just like our comparison before with, you know, conventional veggies versus heirloom veggies, um, higher volume and higher production um, doesn't equate with uh, more flavor or better flavor. On the contrary, um, this Holstein milk, which largely lines the shelves of our supermarkets, is oftentimes no more than sort of a watered down shadow of what true milk should taste like. Um, Anyone who's tasted uh, raw milk or milk fresh from a, from a cow from a small family dairy knows that it's really rich and it's really delicious. And, um, you know, the supermarket milk just can't, can't hold a candle to it. Um, so in breeding for production and, and not really thinking about other things, we've lost sort of the fat and the flavor of our milk. Now, cheesemakers are sort of in a unique position. Um, they have a prerogative to get the most flavor from their milk and have animals that are good producers. Um, so breeding to them is kind of, it's an art and one that can really greatly enhance the flavor of milk used for making cheese and, uh, and, you know, create different, different nuances and different qualities of their cheeses that will just, you know, distinguish them from other cheeses being made. Um, the farmers that we're going to talk to today have mastered that art. They've proven that there's more to dairy than, uh, just Holsteins and, uh, you know, um, eking out the maximum production and, um, They've also started to introduce some of those other breeds of cows and goats out there that have developed over the centuries um, that contribute different flavors and different qualities to the milk. So that's what we're going to be talking to, uh, to Rick Feet and Lainey Fondeler about today. So um, we're going to take a, a quick break. And when we come back, uh, Rick Feet will be here on the phone with us. And thank you for listening.
Welcome back to the Heritage Radio Network. Um, you're listening to Cutting the Curd. My name's Ann Saxelby, and I'm here with my co-host, my sister, Megan Saxelby. Hello. Um, and we are going to get on the phone with Rick Feet from Meadow Creek Dairy to talk to him about his uh, Jersey cows and the uh, cheese that they make down at Meadow Creek Dairy. Can you hear me, Rick? Yes, I can, Ann. Hey, how are you? I'm great. How about you? Very, very good. It's great to hear your voice. It's uh, It's been too long since I've seen you guys, but thank you so much for being on the show. No problem. Um, so I was wondering, you know, if we could talk uh, just a little bit uh, first, if you could tell us sort of how you came to be uh, a dairy farmer in the first place. Well, Helen and I uh, were first married in 77, and we wanted to raise our family and work together uh, on a farm. So... We fooled around with different things, and uh, Helen quit her corporate job and worked on a pig farm, and we found that wasn't our cup of tea. And uh, <laughs> So I quit my job as a carpenter for thirteen sixty an hour. I went to work on a dairy for three sixty an hour, and we had a one-year-old baby then. So Wow. That, that was the beginning of it. <laughs> yeah, wow. So you were milking cows and, and selling your milk on the commodity market at that point? No, we were actually, we worked for another a commercial dairy herd for six years before we started on our own. Okay, okay. So you kind of saw what they did what and, and how you, you know, do things differently when you started your own operation. Yeah, well, there's a lot to learn. So, yeah, I learned on somebody else's cows. And <laughs> smart man, <laughs> smart man. <laughs> um, so what kind of cows do you guys uh, uh, milk down at Meadow Creek Dairy? Well, we got kind of a mixed up mess now. We originally started with uh, American jerseys and uh, now we're milking all kinds of crossbreeds and uh, have a pretty unique herd, I'd say. And uh, now, is your herd a uh, a closed herd, or do you occasionally bring in uh, new cows from other places? No, we haven't brought in any cows into the farm since '89. Um, we're all artificial insemination, so we don't have to worry about important genetics to you know keep our uh, lack of inbreeding up. And uh, we've chosen that path to make a, a safer, healthier herd, less invitation for commercial. Uh, <laughs> Invasions, as it were, for different uh, sources of, of contamination, and, and now we're into the raw milk business. It's a, uh, it's real important to us. Absolutely, absolutely. And wouldn't you think that that also kind of differentiates your milk, and therefore the cheese that you guys make, because your milk is very, uh, very unique, and the product of all that, uh, you know, sort of thought and hard work you put into the uh, the breeding. Yeah, I think so. I think most farmers, you know, after a few years on the ground, they they can see the future and they can see that they need to tailor their genetics to to suit their individual operation. And that's really all we've done. We've just carried it a little further within the cheese, and that's, you know, provided us with plenty of challenge in our spare time. Sure, sure. So you're talking about a big mixed-up mess. Uh, of course, well, so American jerseys are known more for their butterfat production than anything else. Is that is that right? Yeah, Um the reason we started with the jerseys was they were smaller and less intimidating for the because our kids were working on the farm from the time they were doing three. Yeah, and uh, they were also better breeders, and we wanted to be graziers right from the world from the get go, and that's what we did. Um, and we knew we wanted to be in seasonal production eventually, even though we milked you around for four years. And the jerseys are definitely uh, you know an American cow world. They're they're known for their ability to keep grazing during the hot weather and uh and they're also known for incredible reproductive efficiency so that was a great place to start and then from there what other kind of uh genetics and 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 breeds were you interested in in experimenting with and trying to introduce to your herd there well the first thing we did 
was we went to New Zealand genetics. Uh, most of the technology that we use on the farm is from New Zealand in one way or the other. Um, they're just the most efficient, greenest uh, milk producers in the world. Okay. And that's where we learned our grazing techniques from. And the genetics became available to us pretty early on um, from high-quality New Zealand jerseys, and we just switched over to them pretty much completely. I'd say most of the all of the oldest cows in the herd out here now have any uh, significant amount of U.S. jerseys in them. Wow. Okay. So, and then, you know, as far as the logistics go, uh, you know, how do you get that semen from New Zealand to your farm in, in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia? Well, you know, it's a global economy. We take advantage of that. We have, <laughs> we have semen available from all over the world. Uh, it's shipped, and some, some bulls are, are actually sent overseas, you know, whether it's from... France or from New Zealand sent back to the U.S., but most of them are, are kept on uh, farms still in the native country, and then they, they just process that semen and ship it all over the world. Okay. It, it comes to this farm in a, in a UPS shipper of uh, ammonia, uh, sodium, ammonia nitrate, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, fro- uh, liquid and nit- nitrogen. Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. it's frozen at deep temperatures, and it's basically just a thermos, and it's no problem shipping it. Okay, and so then once it arrives at the farm, you do you guys take care of all the insemination yourself, or do you have a, an expert or a vet or somebody that you sort of rely on to help you out with that? No, I, I have been inseminating cows since uh, 81. Excellent. <laughs> and uh, Kat and Jim both learned how to do it when they you know, were young adults, and, and that's my son and daughter, and they can both breed as well. Wow, that's that's so cool. Well, and for you guys, that seems to be very important because you're a seasonal, um, you know, you're you're milking seasonally, and so if you, you know, when it's time to breed, you've got to you've got to get the job done. Yeah, like we're we're breeding. This is our breeding season now. We're just completing our first ten days, so uh, we've had a lot of a lot of craziness out here in the barnyard. We've been breeding ten, twelve, fourteen cows a day, so we don't want to be around bulls that can do that. <laughs> exactly. Um, we can do it with AI with no problem. Okay, okay. So can you talk to us a little bit about the seasonality of your herd and how that works? Because um, I think most people out there just assume that, you know, you can milk a cow, you know, whenever you want for however long you want and all that kind of stuff. Well, of course, first we got to establish that cows do have to have a baby to in order to milk. I did not know that. On, the, on my <laughs> trip up to the first farm that I worked on, they, uh, that was mentioned to me in the car, and I just kind of slunk down in my seat, and I was like, oh, man, this is going to be a steep learning curve. Well, it is a well-kept secret. But, you know, <laughs> um, we, what we do is um, basically all days try and, and calve their cows once a year. Um, we synchronize that calving so that they're all getting their same, they're all in the same stage of lactation at the same time. So we calve in about a 60-day window. Um, hopefully we have our first, our, our about half the herd calve in the first 10 days of the breeding season, but that's, that's a management uh, issue. But our goal is to be able to turn them all dry, because all cows get about 60 days off before they calve again okay. in, in conventional herds and everything. It's, so it's like just, teachers, but a, you know, a midwinter break instead of a summer break. <laughs> right. Right, there's no grass in the winter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of associated costs with, with uh, you know, producing milk in the winter. And it's just something we decided we'd try this way. And, uh, and it worked out well for us financially when we were doing just commodity milk. But now, uh, now basically all the cheese is produced off of grass. So That's incredible. It, it, it's worked real well for us. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, they just, uh, I realize we're, we're running out of time on our, on our little segment here, but before we go really quick, I have to thank you for sending me that song. Um, <laughs> that was an incredible song. Um, Rick sent me a, a song from uh, the, what was the name of the band? Bojack. Bojack, a, a Zydeco singer, and, and the name of the song was something about getting your stank on. Make it stank. Make it stank. That was it. That was a real a real treat, and I thought, um, you know, we're going to try to get it in here for the show today, but so anybody out there uh, who likes Zydeco music should check out that song because it's their, uh, it's your new theme song, you said, right, in Meadow That's Creek? That's right, yeah, yeah. They make the stinkiest cheese around. It's delicious. <laughs> Thank you. So... Well, thank you so much for being on the show, and um, we're going to cut to a quick break, and um, when we come back, we'll be talking with Lainey Fondeller up at Lazy Lady Farm. Well, thanks a lot, Ann. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Yes, have fun. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network, uh, sponsored by Hearst Ranch. My name is Ann Saxelby. My co-host is Megan Saxelby, my lovely sister. And um, we are going to be talking with one other woman today on uh, our Father's Day episode, Who's Your Daddy? Um, we're going to be talking <laughs> with Lainey Fondiller up at Lazy Lady Farm. I'm here. Hi, Lainey. How are you? I am. Good, good, good. Are you in the, uh, are you making cheese right now? Yes. Excellent. All right. Well, we won't take up too much of your time, I promise. Um, so uh, we're talking a little bit about uh, breeding and uh, genetics in dairy animals. And I know that um, at your farm, uh, that's a, a big part of, you know, your philosophy and, and, yep. and, and your uh, practices with your goats. Um, so how many, you milk how many goats? Forty. Forty. Okay. And so I keep, keep two bucks. Okay. One, one buck can breed 20 girls. Okay, okay. That's a pretty good job to have. Yep. I guess, you know, it's not like, you know, every day that he gets to do this. But no, it happens at a, like during a two-week period. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. What's the buck's name? There's Andy mm-hmm. and um, uh, uh, Sting. Sting? Sting? Yeah, like, Does like he sting. do tantric goat sex? 
Huh? Is it like tantric goat sex? No. <laughs> this is my sister, Lainey. She's. I didn't know she was in New York. Oh, just for the weekend. Oh, okay. She's actually coming I'll up to Vermont. I'll soon be to Vermont. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. Uh, yeah, she's going to be down in Middlebury, so we're going to come up and bug oh, you. Hopefully. Right. Yes, yes, yes. I remember that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So um, anyway, tantric goat sex aside. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, where did you learn about um about breeding and uh, and sort of how to manage that? Uh, I guess, well, um, when I started out, I didn't have any money, so I just bought junk and was going nowhere. Junk and as in goats. Junk is yeah, back where somebody's throwing some, you know, yeah, what, what we call back, backyard junk. It's uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, lopsided udders and just no milk and, you know, really pretty much look like crap. Yeah. Uh, but, but they're cheap. <laughs> and so I had worked on dairy farms where they were registered animals, and there was a, you know, a, a real breeding program. I knew about breeding. It was just a matter of having the money to, to get in and play that game of, of registered breeding stock. And I met a breeder by circumstance. Two friends of mine were, came by and said, we're heading down to this breeder. Her name's Kathy Maybe. Uh, you want to come along? So I did, and, um, well, Kathy and I just hit it off, and uh, so we worked together, meaning me, me, me buying breeding stock from her for over 10 years. And is Kathy in Vermont, or is she... she she's in just over the border in New Hampshire. And oh. uh, she, she shows goats, but she also... Some people who show goats don't care about milk production. Sure. Kathy is one who, who shows goats and is enamored with, with milk production. She has that as a, as, as a real kind of holy grail for her, too, to, to have the best of both worlds. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, um, and what kind, does she specialize in, in any kind of... Uh, well, she's, she's French Alpine. French Alpine, okay. And yep. so is your entire herd French Alpine? Or well, is there s- now it's, it's, it's American Alpine, uh, meaning that at some point in time, that French Alpine got crossed with another breed. But over time, uh, when, you, when you register, they keep track of, of the genealogy, and it'll kick into uh, a, what's called a, a pure... Alpine. Okay. Uh, on my papers, it would say 78, 28. It, it, it would give a percentage till it came back to, to Alpine. And so, anyway. Does each goat have its own set of papers? Yeah. That's yeah. great. Yeah. That's absolutely great. So, um, and uh, so you have, so now you, you started getting genetics from Kathy, and then you eventually just decided that having your own bucks on the farm was. Uh, always, always I bought bucks from her. Where I branched out was going out to Oregon, having bucks shipped from Oregon. I had read about this woman in, out in Oregon who had a much higher milk production. Okay. And I was curious about her, and I kept her in the back of my mind. And then one year I go, well, you know, maybe I'll just up the ante a little bit and see if I bring in these bucks, which also are larger, her animals, mm-hmm. on average, weigh about 250 pounds. Kathy's French Alpines are about... 150 pounds. The French and are always dainty, you know. Right. <laughs> so she, it, what Pat and some of these West Coast people, you know, they just have come to the conclusion, you know, a larger animal can have the, you know, the capabilities of, of producing more milk. Not always the case, but they can have that, that the capabilities of, of producing more. Okay, okay. And so you actually had these goats shipped to your farm from Oregon? Yep, they come as, oh, like a month old, in, in like a 
you know, like a like a dog size, you know, large. And like carrier. a FedEx box. <laughs> no, nope, yeah, right. <laughs> they have to come on a plane. It's an expensive venture. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yes. It, yes. And so when you say, you know, that they were, uh, you know, their production was significantly higher. Can you tell us a little bit about what, so, you know, so a normal production for a goat is and, and then it, what you were seeing? In Al- normal average alpine land, it's about 1,800 pounds, 15 to 1,800 pounds in a 305 day. With Kathy Mabies, her average was about 2,000 to 2,400 pounds. Okay. With Morford, she's at 3,500 pounds. Wow. So I, I don't get that immediately. You know, you don't just breed that into your girl and the next one does that. You've got a lot of genetics in there. So it'll kick out one time. It won't kick out. So it takes a while to get a, a steady stream of those. So with each season, then, is that what you do? You just really pay attention to who's the daughter of who? And, and... Yes. Okay. Yes. Yep. I, what you call cull, get rid of girls quite, quite I mean, they, not that they, they go off to, to solder, but... If they don't meet my grade, there's somebody else who thinks, you know, that's good enough. could be a backyard person. It could be another person who's, who's trying to, to move up in the world also, you know, get out, get out of junk bomb land, get into something decent, mm-hmm. and it gives them, you know, that, that next step up themselves. Okay. Okay. And, and how do you think, um, have you noticed, uh, you know, over, over time, um, I don't know, have you noticed that the consistency of the milk coming from these animals has uh, improved your cheese in very sort of real and, and noticeable ways? That, that comes from feed management. I see. Okay. Mm. That's more, I mean, I could get, if I could look at their butter fat and the milk protein. Mm-hmm. You know, I, that would be something I'll, I'll go for uh, eventually. Um, the higher it has, uh, like, it has, you know, when you, when you analyze the milk, higher protein content, that's your cheese yield. But as far as consistency of flavor and whatnot, that, that's all terroir stuff. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so who's your best producer on the farm uh, at this moment? Patches. Patches? Yes. And, uh, and how much, um, I don't know, how much? She's at, she's at 12 pounds a day. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. Yep. And um and you're obviously in uh in the seasonal game as well, right? You start milking yes. um what? they they come in March. The yearlings, I usually have 12 yearlings. They come in April and May. So uh about 30 of the adults will freshen in March and then these yearlings, these 12 or so yearlings come Six will come in April and six will come in May. Okay, okay. Because um, they have to be a certain size before you can get them bred. They have to be 80 pounds. So that's why I kind of sometimes they don't grow evenly. So I'll take a look and, you know, size them up, bust them into two groups. Okay. And so one group might have to wait just a, a little bit longer. Okay, okay. Um, and uh, so we had a question coming in from the studio, one that, uh, uh, or a call-in, um, th- uh, wondering where we can buy your cheeses. So I feel like... It's your place. That's uh, it. <laughs> I know. I was thinking, I was That's like, it. is this a joke? Who's playing tricks on me? Um, <laughs> Mom yeah. and dad are calling in, asking questions to pimp up and sales. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so you can, I, I'm lucky. I'm extremely lucky that you'll send me that cheese. No, I'm and, lucky to have you. Oh, no, great. Oh, come on. No, but yeah. so, yeah, at the, at the Essex market, Saks will be cheesemongers. Um, I have a road. Oh, oh, go for it. <laughs> I didn't know how to use that. Megan, Megan's on the sound effects. 
All right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, um, and every week, you know, you send me something different. I love the names of your cheeses more than anything. Oh, Tom Delay is coming down the pike soon. Two weeks. Tom Delay's are back. Oh, Tom Delay is one of and my then favorites. And in three, three to four weeks, the mixed emotions are back online. Okay, okay, good Good yep. deal, good deal. Yeah, right yep. now we've got a bipartisan, which yep. is the goat-cow blend. Yep. We've got emotional. We've got um, filibusters left around, <laughs> yep. a couple of them, just in case we need to, you know, yep. stall on uh, something that's going on in Washington. Yep. Um, great, and do you have any new uh, cheeses coming out this season? Have you planned for anything new? No, that'll happen in the winter. I've been pondering some stuff. All right, mm. all right. Yeah. Well, I'm building another cave. Oh, fantastic. Yep, I'm going to have two caves. Fantastic. Barry's working on the cave. Yep. So one will be for Bloomy Rhine, one will be for age. I, I, I'm, I'm considering a blue of some sort. Mm. That, that is exciting yep. news. Yep. I just haven't figured out what kind of blue I want. Well, you know, texture wise. Well, I'm all for. Well, I like everything. I can't yep. decide. I can't yep. decide. Um, well, great. I hope Megan and I will have a chance to drive up and come see you and check out the new cave in progress. Yep. And um, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show today and talking okay. to us about your goats and, and, you know, and everything that goes along with them. Well, what radio station? Where are you at? This is the Heritage Radio Network. It's, I'm in a shipping container in the back of a pizzeria in Brooklyn. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> when you come to New York next time to visit I your niece, you've got to yeah. come. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a really, really fun place. Huh. You love it. Well, that would be that would be so much more fun to interview you in person. So Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You do this on Sundays? On Sundays, yep, every other Sunday. I'll be damned. <laughs> do you still have your radio show? Oh, that was Anthony. Not so much anymore, yeah. Anthony ran for governor and then kinda of got back into the radio a little less than he used to. Okay. That was Anthony Polina, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's got lots on his plate these days. Well, I, I thought that was awesome that you had your own show. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for uh, right. for chatting with us. I and gotta go uh, flip some sweet emotions. All right. Sounds mm -hmm. good. All right. Thanks, Lainey. See ya. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye.